When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can unlock ad-free versions of the podcast for $3 a month and get bonus episodes on current TV, movies we don't cover on the podcast, and other topics for $5 a month. We currently have bonus episodes in the works on the series finale of Reservation Dogs and Tasha's Adventures at Fantastic Fest. And there's more to come, especially with the fall movie season finally heating up. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Tasha Robinson. And Keith Phipps. Genevieve Kosky is either an alien hunting humans or a human being hunted by aliens. Either way, she's busy this week. But taking her place is a very special guest, comedian Joe Quazala. We know Joe from his time in Chicago, where he contributed to Click Hole and the Onion News Network while doing stand-up and hosting his own late-night talk show on stage called The Late Live Show. You might know him from his incredible short films, including the official Tainted Love Dance tutorial, his parody of The Slap featuring child Draculas, and maybe one of my favorites, The Horn Honk Depot. He also has a new comedy album out called Funny Songs and Sketches. Joe, welcome. <laughs> Hi, thank you guys so much for having me. This is uh, a great to to see you guys, uh, and uh, I, I like this podcast. And you know, I appreciate the insightful film commentary that you guys always provide. And I hope I don't bring the IQ level down too much. Well, we'll just we'll see how Joe holds up here. <laughs> right, I am a comedian, and so if I do need to do a tangent to talk about airline food, I hope your listeners can understand. <laughs> You have a type five. You could just kind of at go any into, point. Right? If there's a lull, I'm I'm hopping into it. <laughs> uh, so, so this week we're dealing with alienation and aliens in the nation with two movies about extraterrestrial invasions where space creatures learn a little bit about human beings. Though human beings, for their part, are still just lucky to survive. Tasha, what have we got this time? The new Hulu horror film No One Will Save You is a twist on the alien invasion thriller in at least one major respect. The heroine, played by Caitlin Deaver, lives alone, so when extraterrestrials attack her home, she has no one to talk to. And even when she does encounter other people from the community, she's so hated by the locals that no one speaks to her. As a result, No One Will Save You unfolds almost entirely without dialogue. For us, that heightened feeling of alienation called to mind Jonathan Glazer's 2013 science fiction film Under the Skin. Though in Glazer's film, the alienated lead character is an actual alien. As played by Scarlett Johansson, this unnamed being drives around the city of Glasgow, seducing young men and leading them to the slaughter. But even she isn't immune to human pain and vulnerability. So this week, we'll plunge into a relentless alien attack against an overmatched human and no one will save you. Then next week, we'll ride shotgun through Scotland with an extraterrestrial human form as she hunts for horny blokes. 
We'll be back after this break. interviewed Jonathan Glazer for The Dissolve about Under the Skin in 2013, I was surprised to learn that Glazer only vaguely remembered the source material, Michel Faber's 2000 novel of the same name, and that his co-writer, Walter Campbell, hadn't read the book at all. We've seen plenty of loose adaptations before, but it doesn't get much looser than that. Faber's book about an extraterrestrial who takes female form and kidnaps hitchhikers for food on her home planet was a satire on factory farming and immigration with suggestive commentary on the darker aspects of civilization. But while vegetarians might see Glazer's film as an agreeable allegory, his Under the Skin has an aesthetic agenda of its own, one that only needs select pieces of Faber's book. Of the book, Glazer said the part that resonated with him was, quote, this idea of seeing things with her, experiencing things with her, and having her see things for the first time. In that respect, Under the Skin has a lot more in common with Nick Rogue's 1976 classic, The Man Who Fell to Earth, another film about a lonely alien visitor who's moved and ultimately corrupted by his exposure to humankind. But Glazer's film has a more stripped-down minimalist quality, even as it challenges viewers with its abstract and occasionally avant-garde treatment of an extraterrestrial that comes to understand humans as more than just dupable sources of meat. Over the course of the film, this nameless alien, played by Scarlett Johansson, undergoes a quiet yet profound dramatic arc that brings her closer to the being she's hunting in a way that fills her with pity, desire, loneliness, and an empathy that makes her tragically vulnerable. The credits for Under the Skin refer to Johansson's character as the female, so I'll do so here too. In becoming the female, she assumes Johansson's attractive form and a come-hither wardrobe pilfered from a dead woman one of her motorcycle-driving assistants collects from the beach. A pair of high heels, a miniskirt, fishnet stockings, etc., From there, she cruises the streets of Glasgow in a van in an effort to pick up men, which is, here on Earth, an interesting reversal of gender expectations. Many of the interactions between the female and the young men she tries to lure into the van were improvised on the streets of Glasgow, with Johansson talking to non-actors through the driver's side window as a small digital camera captured the action. The accumulation of these scenes, along with other caught footage of Glaswegians going about their everyday lives, have an inevitable humanizing effect while also placing this alien firmly in the world as we know it. And yet, for a time, the female does precisely what she's been sent to do. In a series of visually arresting sequences, she brings numerous men back to a space that Glazer renders as a glossy, reflective black surface that swallows her victims like a silky tar. We also witness her pitiless treatment of a swimmer from the Czech Republic who tries and fails to save a family from drowning. And yet the film takes a turn when she picks up a man so socially isolated by his facial disfigurement that he waits until late at night to go to the grocery store. Her recognition of his alienation moves her and sets her on a different path. Under the Skin is about the actor becoming the part she's been playing without entirely being able to fill out the role. In the brief, terrifying stretch where the female tries to be human, she discovers that she cannot eat a simple piece of chocolate cake and she cannot make love to a stranger who has shown her surprising tenderness. 
She also learns that, like many women, she's vulnerable to the abuses of predatory men. Through the eyes of an alien, rendered so mesmerizingly in the opening sequence, Glazer gives us a chance to step back and consider the fullness of humanity. It is beautiful, it is vile, it is us. We'll talk about it after the break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. No girlfriend, really. Oh, I don't have a girlfriend at all. You're very charming. It's better. Yeah, sorted. You have a handsome face. Aye, yeah. that's all, cheers. You think I'm pretty? Aye, you're gorgeous. Do you? Aye, definitely. Good. Okay, so there are a lot of different ways to read Under the Skin and its alien impression of humankind. What what piece of it interested you the most? Maybe I'll try Joe here. I was really struck by, I guess, when you're so used to seeing in film the killer. I'm almost thinking of like Terminator style. Like that's how you, you get to know Scarlet initially, right? She's just kind of, there are these sequences where you really get her purposeful, walking down the street. And it's, I don't know, there was something about when she starts to turn. I have to commend Scarlett's performance here because she is not, what she has to do is keep that kind of blank veneer, but you need to see her subtly turn. And I was, I was really, as someone who, you know, I think Scarlett can often be very good. I thought this was one of the best performances Uh, from her that I've ever seen. Her being able to have those kind of subtle changes that could have been overwrought, but, you know, were done quite subtly. Yeah, that's for me too. I've seen this film several times now, and it it is a slow journey. I mean, that's sort of the the thrust of the film in a way, but there's kind of tracing where, you know, various steps along the way. Like, I love the cut from the kid crying on the beach, which I've thought about that kid, I think, every day since I saw this film however many years ago, but to the, to the kid crying in the car and her making the connection of of, uh, of that as, as, as well. But I mean, some of my favorite moments uh, of the performance though come early on when she is just on task and the way her face shifts the moment she realizes the person is not going to be a good victim. Like when they said, oh, I'm here with my family and her face just kind of completely it loses the facade entirely. She's just, you know, wants to move on to the next victim who is going to be better suited for her. It's, it's, yeah, it's remarkable work. Part of what interests me is just the ambiguity of so much of this. Like, I, I you know me, I want to read this as a, a, a treatise on gender relations. Uh, so much of it is about specifically women and men and predator-prey relationships of different kinds. But there's so little given to us about what her inner life is. We just we have to deduce so much from her actions and the actions of the the only other alien we really know 
much about at all and practically nothing to speak of, which leaves us with just these moments. I think on this rewatch, one of the things I was most struck by, I kind of thought to myself, I've seen this uh, film a few times. I can do the thing where I'm kind of semi-watching it and doing something else. And then that scene where she's undressing the woman and then she pauses and pulls a live ant off her skin and just starts regarding the ant walking across her fingers. And then Glazer gives us this super, super close up of the ant itself against a white background. I was like, oh, no, I've got to I've got to pay attention to every single second of this movie because moments like that aren't explained. And I was just really struck this this viewing through by how many different ways there are to read that image. You know, she could be seeing the ant as a potential contaminant in this like clean white space they've got. It's possible that her species is more insect-like than humanoid and she's seeing something she relates to in a way she doesn't relate to the human body that she just stripped the clothes off and like left lying there. It's possible that she's been briefed pretty thoroughly about humans. You know, we we hear her practicing human language in the opening titles, but that she hasn't been briefed on an ant and it's new information to her. There are just so many different ways to read that sequence. And I kind of love the ambiguity of that, just how much freedom Glazer gives us to take each each moment. You know, there's there's a flow to the movie that we can see in terms of what she is experiencing and how she changes. But all of these little interactions, you're just kind of left to decide for yourself what you're seeing and what it means. And I, I just I love the ambiguity of it. Yeah, that's the thing watching this film. I've seen it many times as well. And it's just, it is stripped down in so many respects, and but also so rich in, in, in a film that, that you can kind of look at from so many different angles, from, from a technical angle, from the, you know, thinking about the, the, the use of sound and, and music, uh, you, know, for, for, you know, to think about it, as you were saying about a film about gender or gender relations and, and how that shifts as the film goes on. It just, there, there's, there's so many, it's so kind of prismatic and yet it feels very pure and, and very intentional in, in a way that I guess, you know, you would call Kubrickian just because it's bold and yet, and yet somehow concise and precise. It just doesn't feel like there's anything about it that is uh that hasn't been thoroughly sort of thought through and yet and yet at the same time it's not a it's not a film that that is spelling anything out to you i mean that that that, because that can be kind of a problem with filmmakers who have sort of thought everything every tiny aspect through is that is that they don't leave anything for the viewer to kind of unpack and i I think that is not (laughs) that's definitely not the case with under the skin you can't really find a plot hole or a you know a, a hole in the logic if there is nothing that has been laid out to be explained, which is uh, brilliant. Yeah, and for all the, all the control that uh, there, just the element of chaos introduced by the, the hidden cameras and using people on the street. It's kind of like in some ways it's like the world's most austere jackass skit. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, wow. oh, what a great description that I would not yeah. have come up with. Yeah. Also, that uh, yeah, or, or you know, Kiarostami. You could also see. You could also you could also also reference Kiarostami if you wanted to. Keep. No, uh, yeah, no, don't don't wanna, take away from wanna... the image of uh, Johnny Knox just <laughs> Johnny Knoxville just melting in a, a pool of black tar. He'd be up for it. I think yeah, he'd, <laughs> try it. he'd definitely try it. At least Steve-O would be. Uh, boy, when we see what what happens underneath that uh, surface, whew, that is hard hard to deal with. 
still one of the scariest moments I've ever had in a theater. I, I think my heart stopped. It hasn't lost much of its impact uh, no. over the course of, of many, many years. But there's the experience of seeing that image and the, the musical sting that hits with it when it happens in a, a dark and silent theater where you just you feel like you're straining in some of these scenes of complete pitch darkness to glean like anything from the sound, from from the screen, from what's going on. I kept thinking of uh, The Vast of Night during this movie because it's hmm. so caught up in its music, in its in its soundscapes, in its minimalism. And in that like chill, dark, there's deep, deep blacks and the quiet of a dead of night where nobody's around. And then you you get that image and that blast of sound. And <laughs> I, I it, it definitely took a couple years off my life seeing that in the theater. Just like the, the crunching noise I didn't like. <laughs> I, I, I like the, yeah, I, I watched this with... Uh headphones on because i i did i did not want to um limit myself to the to the sound of of my sad you know of my tv which is not that great it, it was both essential and regrettable because <laughs> it is it is a uh it, it can be a, a beautiful film to listen to but also an extremely uh difficult film to listen to did you find that listening to it with uh, headphones helped you understand the scottish people on the street at all <laughs> uh, maybe a little bit i mean i also felt like it, it was not what was being said was not hugely Important, necessary yes. until you get to the dis, until you get to the disfigured man who comes i mean i feel like that dialogue is important mm-hmm. uh and that and i think that's also you know kind of gets to this other piece of the film which is like it is extremely controlled in many respects obviously very thought through and planned down to the frame but there are aspects of it or the specific aspect of it with the female in the van you know cruising uh the city that are improvised and, and it's it's interesting i was kind of wanted to ask how well you think those two aspects of the film kind of coexist I mean, for me, watching it and kind of having that more top of mind than it was the first time I saw the movie when I, I did not know about the improvisation. One of the things that I see happening there, you know, pretty clearly is just everything is cold and crystalline and precise when she's alone or when she kind of considers herself to functionally be alone. You know, at the the point where she's leading men into the the tar, she she's alone at that point. You know, it, they're surrendering themselves and the the debate is over the question of whether they're suitable prey and whether they'll come with her and whether they're dangerous is all over at that point. So those scenes are very cold and precise. When she's alone studying herself or going from one place to the other, deciding what to do, everything is very cold and clinical. It's only when other people are around that things start to get, you know, more loosey-goosey and imprecise. And I think that that just really neatly reflects the fact that when she's out hunting, she is trying to create control, but she can't 100% control her surroundings. She can't control who she interacts with or who they may be with, or in the one case where she kind of pinpoints the man and then just a huge flock of club goers go along. She can't control who's around. So... (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. To me, it just it's a really sharp dividing line between, I think, what we're maybe meant to see as a reflection of her her inner life or as the world that she comes from in these very crystalline Kubrickian spaces versus what it's like for her kind of trying to insert herself into Earth and be part of it. Yeah, if I didn't know... The, the 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 method the which those ones were those scenes were shot i i wouldn't have guessed it because first of all it's it's insane uh to <laughs> to do that uh to put scarlett johansson in a, in a in a wig in a van and send her out on the street to talk to random scottish people is such a a, a crazy way to make a movie but at the same time it, it does all you what um i like the way you describe the divide uh tasha but it, but it all it does all flow together just fine it's it's uh kind of remarkable that way are we to believe that the actors who eventually make it to the tar that those are actors or are I think those I are would actors, imagine yeah. unless the the pitch was hey you've been talking to Scarlett Johansson <laughs> would you like to get naked and walk into tar because that I mean I can imagine there's a number of people who would take that Oh absolutely I, I'm not entirely sure on that because like reading the rereading the interview that Scott did with Glazer for the Dissolve, there's something that he said that kind of caught my eye about how they would go to these men after they'd had an interaction with Johansson and talk to them about whether they were interested in being in the film and the lengths they might have to go to if so. Mm. And to me, that phrasing really did kind of say, okay, well, are you willing to get naked and walk into a pool? Yeah, I think that's exactly what that yeah, means. I would, I would gamble. I would gamble that, that uh, those are still not non-actors. Uh, Interesting. That who, yeah, just, who, just who, going who through. To, who have committed to the part. <laughs> the IMDb entries, these are not people who have uh, other any credits. other credits. Yeah. <laughs> so perhaps uh, that, that certainly lends some credence And I, to I that. think it was also knowing that, I mean, for a number of reasons, but the fact that you never see these guys struggle, like there could have been a choice when they are walking into the pool that there's some sort of, uh, you know, they're gasping for breath or like they realize what's happening. But I think both for the film and also for the actors, it is the right choice that is they are mesmerized. They completely submerge. And then even, you know, that scene where you're in it, there's looks of concern, but you don't see wild flailing with these guys. Yeah, and I think it's very important to note that when she changes her mind about the the man with the facial tumors, uh, Adam Pearson, who we have to talk about more, especially in conjunction with that, none of these people have other credits. He he went on to be in other movies as a result of this experience. But, uh, you know, she she has mercy on him and she she pulls him out and lets him go, uh, albeit, you know, naked and alone into the night, which he handles remarkably well. He seems to be pretty complacent, isn't the word? Pretty calm about the whole thing. Like he develops a plan and executes it. He there's no screaming. There's no begging. There's no he gets pulled out of the black and then freaks out. It just there's there's some kind of like hypnotic or mesmeric thing going on there. I think one of the other reasons I sort of asked so about these scenes of her her driving these improvised scenes with a digital camera is that it's interesting to me that that Glazer was willing to sacrifice a little bit on the on on a visual front in order to uh, give us those scenes. You know what I mean? Like like it, it's it's it, they're a little bit more documentary like than some other shots of the film, which are very formalized 
though at the same time i, I think i think i think everything kind of ends up matching maybe it's just maybe it's just the way scotland looks <laughs> maybe it's just all <laughs> all kind of grim like that but hmm. but um but it's it, but it, to be at the same time it, it it is a film of occasionally just staggering beauty like visually like there's some incredible individual shots in the film that are that are planned out and, and don't have the don't have the kind of like Scarlett Johansson driving around in a van quality to them is something different. It all integrates well, but but I, I find it interesting, you know, that you could have that kind of contrast within the same movie and, and have it all sort of flow together as well as it does. One question I wanted to, to talk about that's so important to the is the the sound of it. We talked a little bit about it, but there's the there's, there's the score, there's the sound design. Um, this was something that was, you know, very intricately planned on a production and a post-production level uh, and i want to get your thoughts about how that works how, how the music works and how the sound works and how they work together well again i keep thinking of the beach scene i mean the, the waves are so i know we're going to talk about that in more detail inevitably but but the waves are such an overwhelming you know sound element and then the way they drown out the dialogue and in a way like the water's already Consuming these people even before they're they've been pulled under it, it's um, that that really that really um, sticks out for me as well. But it is the score is so unusual, and it was. Can you do you know a little bit about how it was recorded, Scott? I think you got into it a little bit with that interview with Clay. I did, I did, but I, I haven't. I didn't look at it. I didn't look at it I, again. I I can I can look it up if you want, but uh, uh, it's okay. Could you look up how uh, important the song Sandstorm by Darube was to Glazer to put into this film? I'm sure I'm sure you talked about it a lot with him. When was that? When, when, I don't it's, in the, it's in the club. Uh, okay. Oh, okay. Okay. There. Yeah, I don't, I don't you guys didn't immediately jot down Sandstorm on the closest sheet of paper <laughs> so that you could remember it for this record? Uh, I'm no, afraid that was you. not. Perhaps we should have. <laughs> so the Michael Levi score is so interesting to me because it feels both expressive uh, you know as a traditional score might be at times and other times like impressionistic just just like little like just worked into almost like a texture like a soundscape and it's just it, it like you know i know i think there was this this process of of recording along with you know watching these scenes unfold and there was kind of that interesting and unconventional recording process that 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 led the score to, to the place it is but i think it's interesting to listen to that score and then also to kind of have those moments where the where where the the score goes away entirely and, and you're left with you know the isolated sounds sounds that are really uh, specific and um you know or as, as keith would say you know the the in that beach scene you know that natural sound you, you don't want to do anything to disrupt that because it's because it because you can feel the power of those waves of the relentless power and and uh you know why would you kind of get in the way of that but i i think you know this is one of those films where you can kind of close your eyes and the the sound would kind of tell its own story well, particularly about when things are happening that are menacing. Like there's a, a big difference between, for instance, the scene where she just stands in, in the middle of the city and like looks around at people. And we get this montage of images of just humans being humans. And then they start overlapping more and more. And then they start overlapping with her face. Like there's a, a real difference between what the soundtrack's doing there and that 
ominous, like minimalist string thing that goes on when she's leading people into the tar or, uh, you know, when she's when she's hunting or being hunted. There's I mean, this this is up there. I'm not kidding when I say up there with John Williams Jaws score for me in terms of relentless music that becomes iconic in telling you when somebody is being threatened and is probably about to die. Hmm. Yeah, that's a high praise uh, for sure. So we talked about this a little bit, but but I want to kind of circle back to Johansson and kind of what she brings to the table. I think think Joe was kind of talking a little bit about about her transformation. How do you all see it, uh, Keith or Tasha? Her transformation in terms of? Well, her transformation, I mean, th- there, there is a arc that this character undergoes throughout, you know, to, to where she has this pitiless view of, of, of humanity. She's there to do a, a job that she, that she does quite efficiently and, and coldly, and then something changes. And it's, you know, I think Johansson kind of has the challenge of being both still an alien, but also someone who, uh, or also a being that is evolving in some way. And and I was curious about how she, you think she sort of handles that job. I mean, it's um, it's almost like an, the press is almost like an hourglass where the, the first half is, you know, going into, it's her learning what it means to be human. And the second half is her trying to experience what it, what it is to be human. And they're both kind of, in a way, disastrous in, their, in different ways in, in some respects? I mean, I would think it's really interesting that her attempts to be human all kind of revolve around sensuality and, and senses. The mm. ex- experience where she's trying to eat the cake is just, God, the way it's presented when she's in that restaurant with just glass behind her and this gorgeous vista and everything's brightly lit and the focus on like the, the presentation of the slice of cake. So it looks like the most delicious thing in the world, but also looks elegant. You know, you you can feel how much that slice of cake costs in that restaurant because just being in that restaurant, you know, you're you're paying for with every meal. And it, it takes one bite and she has to spit it out. Uh, and we have no idea why, you know, is does she is she incapable of eating at all? Is like there's something wrong, you know, she can't have sugar or, or chocolate. Can she just not have like earth, you know, carbon-based compounds whatsoever? We don't know. All we know is she's in this sumptuous, sensual environment trying to experience this very basic human thing, and she she can't do it at all. And from there, the the transformation into she's trying to kiss, she's trying to watch TV, she's trying to have sex, and none of these things work out just sort of feel like a natural progression of experimenting with more and more things and finding that they all reject her in some way. And yet that moment <laughs> where where her um her companion tries to enter her and just gets this weird look on his face like wait what? Mm. And she lunges away from him and like leans over the side of the bed and sticks a a, a lamp up her crotch trying to figure out like she apparently does just plain straight up does not have a vagina and did not realize it until that point. 
I mean, it's almost a a, a joke in Greta Gerwig's Barbie uh, kind of moment there. <laughs> but the way the way it's played with the expression on her face and just the the complete unsensuality and the unceremoniousness with which she like grabs that lamp and and thrusts it into her crotch as she's sitting there on the edge of the bed with no pants on and her her ass crack showing. It's a comic moment. You know, it's an alien moment and a, an alienation moment. It's it's sad and lonely and terrifying and weird. And we're also in the back of our heads sort of thinking about how much threat the guy with her is under. But it's still Scarlett Johansson sticking a lamp up her hoo-ha. And it's kind of funny. That makes me so... I get what you're saying, but that scene makes me so sad, though. I mean, because, you know, she's actually seems to be enjoying, enjoying her humanity such as it is. She's found someone that uh, the one person who's actually she can be safe with, which is an odd thing to say about someone who's been murdering people. But but I think our, our sympathies are still with her at, at this point, nonetheless. And he just it just it becomes apparent in that moment just how impossible her desires to experience what it is to be human are there's there's a very physical limitation to it um and yeah it, it makes me it's disturbing and but it also makes me really sad i agree with this you this is a great short film that whole that whole sequence <laughs> is just like everything from her getting on the bus to that moment is just is just i mean it, it alone is just such a wonderful you know stretch of cinema and we never find out what happens to the guy. This it's is that, true. The, that when he, the aftermath of that scene is withheld. I mean, you know, he maybe he she flees and he wonders what just happened, or maybe he, you know, he's he's not alive to tell the tale. Who knows? And what I was going to say is like, yeah, Keith, I completely agree with you, and yet I still I cannot help but find comedy in Scarlett Johansson's facial expression in that moment is just sheer balk what the fuck? I don't have a hoo-ha. They didn't give me one. Like she's... The part that makes me laugh is when she's trying to watch that odd <laughs> sketch Tommy comedy. Cooper? Which is... Uh, Tommy Cooper. Is, is, yeah, I don't know the context for this. Can you, t- can you tell me what I it mean, is? I fell down a whole Tommy Cooper... <laughs> rabbit hole as a result of this i it obviously this was not something i could where i could stop the film and look it up when i saw it uh the first time in the theater but this time i i ended up stopping the film at that point and spending like an hour <laughs> watching tommy cooper sketches just to try to understand what that experience is he is the um, best i mean he, <laughs> you're you're a comedian uh joe like what's your experience around tommy cooper uh so when i was in chicago i used to be a part of a weekly showcase called the lincoln lodge that was run by a british man whose comedic tastes were i think along the lines of tommy cooper who is a very very broad uh comedian who's Story, if I'm sure you looked into it, is tragic. This is a performer oh, yeah. who died on stage to thunderous laughter because everybody assumed it was a gag. And it took a while for people to realize what was happening and that he had suffered, I believe, a, a heart attack. And so that really is is the legacy of Tommy Cooper. But it beyond that, he is just like a very, very, I mean, as you can see in the film, goofy, physical clown of a performer who's always wearing a fez and he did a lot of these kind of uh, like prop magic tricks uh that were either uh, you know some of them just very uh goofily presented like that that particular one that you see him doing 
is him sort of presenting the the idea that he's using magic to move the spoon around in this jar. Hence, spoon, jar, jar, spoon, jar, spoon, spoon, jar, 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 which is what the sketch is called. But he, mm-hmm. he did a it's lot of other magic tricks writing. like that. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's just, it's one of those things like... In that clip, which you can find very readily online, you know, it's it's a classic uh, taping of one of his classic physical comedy bits. You can hear the audience just starts laughing the second he comes out. You know, he's he's a popular enough comedian to have achieved that level of he smiles at the audience and they laugh in anticipation. He raises an eyebrow at the audience and they laugh because they're in on the joke. And there's just like uproarious laughter throughout that entire sequence where he's just yelling spoon, jar, jar, spoon and doing a very, very fake magic trick because there's just such goodwill for him. Scarlet just can't give it up. Yeah, exactly. That whole scene is just about, you know, her her partner watching this and and laughing and eating a, a great big plate of messy food and she can't participate in any of it. You see, so they should, if they, there used to be a comedian that opens with, hey, have you ever tried to eat a piece of chocolate cake? Uh, but uh, <laughs> She'd be with him for be. that point, but then... Yeah, she, then I don't know. Yeah. Uh, have you ever stuck a lamp between your legs and found out you're missing essential equipment? You gotta if you're gonna if you're gonna be in Scotland, you gotta just you gotta go for the big pile of hummus, not hummus, uh, haggis. You gotta be haggis pile uh, instead of a, <laughs> yes. instead of chocolate cake. Maybe a Scottish delicacy hummus, <laughs> <laughs> the chickpeas pulled from the Highlands. <laughs> oh, terrible. Anyway, so let, I kind of want to circle back to. The beach mm. sequence because it is such a uh, I mean I don't know maybe the most uh, there's so many great sequences in the film but this is this is a kind of a big one I mean on a conceptual level and filmmaking level what makes it so horrifying and effective I mean it's really proving at this point that the the female does not have any humanity because she's presented with so it, the way it, it escalates you know it, it's presented with okay there's this guy is hero- heroic and trying to save this this family in this situation that just isn't gonna happen to the point where he pulls the guy out and the guy goes back in and it's just anyone with a heartbeat would be uh devastated and then you're at least when i was watching it you're kind of hoping like oh maybe this is going to be the moment where the female is gonna get that crack of humanity and then just brains the guy with a rock and then the icing on the on the cake of devastation is just and there's a crying baby, and I'm not even going to look at it. I'm out. I've, I've done what I needed to do. It's that esca- escalation oh, of like, ah, oh, geez, well, who, who are well, we dealing the, with here? Well, the motorcyclist coming back at night, and the baby's still there crying. And I thought, like, and, okay. And just ignores it. It's like it's not even there. This, you know, but he, he doesn't even just ignore it. Like, the <sighs> if if her going after the, the swimmer is the icing on the cake, the cherry on top of the icing is the way Glazier shoots him walking purposely for, for the baby. And you're kind of thinking, oh, no, he's here to clean up the traces he's going to kill that baby or he's going to take that baby off to be food whatever is about to happen this baby is terrible and even worse he isn't even walking towards the baby he's walking to pick up some random piece of clothing that the swimmer dropped and he just he walks directly towards the baby 
stops at the thing he was actually walking for, picks it up and heads back to the camera. It's it's such a cleverly shot moment and it's so horrifying. Then you get the bit later when she's listening to the radio in her van. It's just like Glazer needs to make sure that we know that the baby did not make it. <laughs> it's just absolutely important uh, that, that we uh, understand that every person there did not survive that uh, incident. You know, and, her, and she kind of looks on and we have a blank expression. There's really nothing uh, registering there, which, which, again, kind of makes the transformation that she does end up making pretty extreme mm-hmm. when you get when you talk about the point that she's kind of coming from but i think they're just the angle that he shoots the whole sequence from the distance is so bold you know i mean i think we could see everything unfolding but i think the hopelessness of these people trying to save each other the impact of that is uh, so much greater when you when you do kind of take that kind of step back and, and see all uh, see the action from afar and, uh, you know, just I think that lo- the level of helpness, helplessness uh, is sort of heightened by that, I think. I think also, despite that really pitiless action of killing the Czech uh, vacationer, I think that scene stays with her. I, you can It feels like that she's on her mind when she hears the crying baby mm-hmm. later. And it's definitely an act of you know, self-sacrifice and, and this this feeling of, of you know, shared existence that perhaps her species doesn't have or or i don't you know we're not given enough information to, to make that determination but that shot of the baby i, I not not to not to dwell on it too much because it's, it's so disturbing but but the way it's held on it it's such it's such fascinating because it's like you you know this is a, a baby all alone you realize just how helpless it is he's got he's got his cute little outfit on too mm-hmm. uh, but, 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 yeah but the way he stays on it it's also like you kind of maybe start to see it from an alien perspective, like it kind of looks like you know maybe a chick, like waiting for its mom to come home and, and being hungry, and it, you, you definitely see the animal quality of, of human existence in a way. I, I don't know; it's, it's extraordinary, and I do hope that baby was taken and pampered and, and have you know given ice cream or whatever was uh, appropriate for it uh, at, the, at that time in, in its development. But, but boy, uh, oh, you, you mean know, the actual baby, set. not the uh, the actual baby? Okay. No, no, I know what happens to the baby in the film. Okay. Nothing <laughs> I good. Thought were, I, thought, I thought you were. Well, it's Probably by seals missing, or something. Indeed. Who knows? It's yeah, <laughs> yeah the, 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 the the news report is like the baby's corpse was found half devoured by seals or something like that to really twist the knife and further. <laughs> yeah. But um, you know, we're spared that, I guess. Hey, yeah. one of the things that did really fascinate me about that scene, though, is uh, Scott. You when you talked to Glazer, he said when they scouted that area, the sea was completely flat. There were no waves. And the day that they went to shoot it, they were going to try to figure out how to how to get waves. But And then they showed up and the sea looked like that. And the, mm. the swimmers are all like professional open water swimmers with a lot of experience. And even so, they got themselves into trouble. You know, the, the woman ended up too near the rocks and you literally see her in the film struggling to kind of maneuver herself so she isn't too close and she won't get dashed against them. And then he told you that uh, they they went back the next day for pickup shots and the sea was completely flat again. It was <laughs> just an accident of, uh, you know, time and weather and current that made that sequence look the way it did. And I, I'm a little obsessed by that idea because it's such a perfect sequence. He just, he holds it. He holds the shot for so long to make it clear that we're actually watching this happen you can feel them getting tired and cold you know it's not like there are so many cuts that you're like okay and then the the cutter ship came in pulled them on board gave everybody uh warm blankets and then they they went back for their 18th take 
like you you can really feel the peril in it i want to move ahead a little bit later in, into the into the film when things start to shift for her uh, when the female shows mercy to this disfigured man and heads off to the scottish highlands there's a shift in power that follows uh, she was once the hunter and now she's exposed um uh, what, what does that shift kind of mean to, to you and and how did it how does it bring weight to her encounters, uh, both to the man on the bus who treats her tenderly and then the logger who assaults her in the forest? I mean, before we get there, I, I don't want to completely glaze over Adam Pearson, who I am, yes. was just mesmerized with uh, the first time I saw this movie. And then like looking into him afterwards, he just he has a very interesting life story. He's an identical twin and his twin is not uh, disfigured in the same way. He has the same uh, physical condition. It just apparently manifested differently in him. So they they look completely different. But then the, that sequence where you see him naked and there's no evidence of the, the similar tumors like anywhere else on his body. It's just it's it's a lot to take in. I assumed seeing the, the movie the first time that this was very impressive makeup, like on the order of John Merrick in David Lynch's The Elephant Man. Mm-hmm. And no, this is just somebody that they they went to an advocacy group for people with disfigurement and talked to them about finding somebody uh, who was was proper for this film. And they ended up with this guy who's a an advocate and has been an advocate for uh, essentially disability rights his entire life and has appeared in several other movies. His performance just stuns me because he's, you know, at this point, particularly a non-professional in his 20s, a pretty shy guy who's lived a relatively isolated life. And he apparently spent a bunch of time with Scarlett Johansson and with Glazer kind of talking to them about the proper way to seduce the character that he was playing, you know, somebody Mm. who's lived the life that he's lived. But in that sequence with him, I, I can just feel, you know, I I have dealt with my share of bullying throughout my life. And I every line of his face, every word of his out of his mouth is the response of somebody who's waiting for the other shoe to drop, who's waiting to find out like what what the joke is that's going to be turned on him, how this scene is going to twist in a way that's going to mock him. And whereas all of these other men just kind of blithely sail into this situation, he doesn't want to give up anything because he so clearly sees that the moment he does say, yes, I like touching your neck or yes, I would like to to be with you as the first time I've ever been with a woman. That's when she's going to say something devastating. And the tension in that scene as she's trying to find the right hooks to lure him into his death. And he's got more defenses up than anybody else she's dealt with. And then just like the late night swoony way it's all shot and, and scored. Uh, it's, it's it's one of my favorite things I've ever seen in movies. It's quite good. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> it, but, but I'm kind of curious what just what you, the way when you're describing the scene as it unfolds, like, you know, when does the moment of mercy occur? Because it's so late. You know, I mean, it she, seems it, to happen after when she's looking at herself in the mirror. It does. Uh, and I'm not really sure how to read that. And we do see him start to go underwater. Yeah. Yeah. He goes yeah, all the way under. He goes underwater. Mm-hmm. She yeah. she leaves him afterwards and she looks at herself in the mirror. I, I think it's just literally a moment of confronting what she's done 
And because of the mirror, I think she's confronting what she looks like and what that has made her place in the world. Like, I think on some level, she's maybe confronting the fact that she was designed, you know, this exterior was literally designed as bait. And she has used it to potentially destroy this person who, in the end, was very vulnerable and very kind. And I I think she just looks at what she's just done and finds it wanting for the first time. I think this is also the uh, a person that she identifies with in a way that she doesn't with anybody else that she she meets of mm. uh, just that that se- uh, sense of loneliness of 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 being out of step with the rest of humanity of which of course she has no real feeling for. I think I th- you know it's, I think also there's there may be just the accumulation of her time there has also kind of played a factor in sort of softening her up as Keith was saying with the with the uh, her reaction to the to the baby it's like you know this is kind of a, a subtle you know culmination of, of events but then the, the the shift as it happens is quite dramatic I mean it is it, it, you know in, in, it, you know it's kind of what's interesting is that after after that happens all of the power that she has which is significant uh, you know she's she's the hunter she is in control of, of these situations it goes away completely and she's more vulnerable even than a normal, you know, single woman traveling through the Scottish Highlands would be because she doesn't necessarily, you know, she's still sort of trying out how to be human and, and she doesn't have the defenses necessarily to deal with it. That said, we never get any indication throughout this movie that she has any particular powers. Like she has the advantage of knowing what's going on and she has the advantage mm. of having this alluring exterior that makes men want to follow her. But we never see any sign that she's, you know, super strong or has a, a hidden sting or even has a weapon and knows how to use it. And as soon as she's physically confronted by a threat, it's it's clear that she just doesn't have a weapon against it. So, I mean, I, I think she's that vulnerable throughout the entire movie. And the only advantage she has going on at any point is that she knows her intentions and the men don't. I think it's also kind of important that we have uh, that she's meeting two very different types of of men here, <laughs> because we were talking about uh, you know this you talk about this movie as being kind of about the fullness of humanity, and I think we all we get that spectrum in these these two guys, right? I mean this guy this guy that she meets on the bus who 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 treats her tenderly and 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 uh, who she can at least sort of imagine having a, a you know some kind of normal warm exchange with and then of course she goes into the forest and meets a, a very uh, you know a, a very different and very dangerous and ultimately you know uh, a deadly man as well yeah that guy in the forest i uh, this is my first time watching this movie and as soon as he had like a paragraph of uh, dialogue when almost nobody speaks more than one or two words at a time i was just <laughs> like i do not i don't think i trust this guy he's got he's got bad vibes <laughs> Yes, though God, I love the the, the way uh, Glazer photographs this forest is so amazing. God Almighty, this film is so pretty uh, on occasion. But I, I find it interesting, and, and again, we can can see her so differently. You know, when, when she when when uh, we do see you know who she is under the skin, we do see her get you know burned, and it's uh, it's it, it's harrowing, and and uh, certainly not where we started with that character. Yeah, I mean, why? I can't speak for everyone, but I really feel for her so deeply by the end of the movie. And she begins as just—we don't even know if she's cold-blooded, just a murderer. She's uh, definitely a, a pitiless killing machine who, by the end of the film, has become something quite different. 
the first time I saw this movie, I was devastated by and like actively angry at the ending. Mm. There's so much. I, Glazer has, has specifically said that he did not set out to create any kind of, of treaties on gender. And I believe him. And yet at the same time, so much of this movie is about gender. You know, the the sequence where she's sitting in the van while the young men rocket and scream at her to get out of the van is so threatening. The fact that she doesn't target women, you know, she doesn't. There's that moment where she's looking at the homeless woman and I'm thinking in any other movie, you know, uh, homeless people are considered vulnerable like uniquely vulnerable to disappearance but she she never addresses this person she never speaks to them she only goes after like young healthy males who will want to have sex with her and it just it all seems very significant all of the push and pull between her and the uh the motorcyclist that excruciating scene where he examines her close up and, and gets way way inside her personal space where it looks like he's just maybe checking her disguise for flaws. Although, again, that's a very up for interpretation moment. There's just so much about men and women in this movie. And then in the end, the world is saved from the alien predator by a rapist, like a violent predatory rapist. And I felt so betrayed by that ending the first time I watched this movie. Betrayed how? Betrayed in the sense that we we were slowly coming to see her as, if not human, at least making an effort to be human. And that gave her a kind of vulnerability. And that vulnerability was was met with violence. It, it reminds me to some degree of the end of uh, Promising Young Woman, the Emerald Fennel film. But at the same time, there's a, a tension there because she is an alien who eats people. You know, that's that is the interpretation. Formerly. One assumes. Yeah, you do. Now she's good. Which I mean, I I say that joking, but also like you know, we uh, we are led to believe by by the way the film develops and the way she develops by this point that she's maybe not going to continue with the mission at all, and her fixers or whatever you want to call her are actively searching for her because she's gone rogue. Oh, for sure. That was my read on it too. I certainly agree with you, and it seems like that's again that it's placed her in a a uniquely vulnerable situation where she can get herself into trouble. Nonetheless, just that, that sensation of the nice guys get eaten and the rapists win the day is, it's certainly a a way to see the movie. Hmm. And I, I just, I felt so, I felt violated by the end of this movie. The first time I watched it, it was something. And then I, I, you know, I went and read the book and I read a whole lot about other people's responses to this film. And I thought a lot about it, but the first time I watched it, that was my very visceral response. And I guess I'm very curious for all of you, you know, how you take that ending, how you, how you feel about it, how you process it. I mean, for, for me, I mean, this is maybe a cynical take, but you know, I, I think of it as, you know, she's starting to let uh, humanity in, you know, and she gets she gets the good. She gets the a relationship with another person and the good that can come with humanity. But then, you know, by the end, the kind of ills of humanity take over and, and she is she's murdered, which is a part of it. 
that's kind of my reading too is that there's a kind of horrible irony to it that she finally that becoming a human a human woman means being a prey to the very to the worst men you know the, not not that she's been preyed on the worst men necessarily but but the worst uh, that that uh man it has to offer is is what ultimately does her end that's kind of the project of the whole movie is just the movie is about kind of showing mankind through her perspective, through the perspective of of an alien, and, uh, and so I think it, I think where it ends is just almost gives the film a certain amount of balance, and uh, as you say, kind of a, a, an irony as well. But it, it it seems like the right ending to me. But we also we have a provocative ending uh, coming up in the, our next podcast, so maybe we should save. Uh, save endings talks till then when we, when we talk about no one will save you uh, but uh, for now we'll be back with uh, feedback now it's time for feedback but before we get to it we want to shout out film spotting the next picture shows mothership podcast hosted by adam kempinar and josh larson as we record this, Adam and Josh have dropped an episode on concert documentaries tied to the re-release of Stop Making Sense, but digging a little more into Martin Scorsese's The Last Waltz. They also offer their top five music docs. Okay, so we're we are a little bit light on feedback, I, I should say. A little light. If you guys want to send us some, that would be nice. Um, uh, but I, I, what I wanted to kind of... Light light and lonely, I think is how <laughs> I describe it. We're basically very sad aliens wandering around looking for somebody to connect to. Um, but this was kind of... But Under the Skin was kind of a big movie for us, for Keith and uh, Tosh and I, uh, because it was, I think, one of the better films that we saw, uh, new films that came out while we were at the dissolve for the two years that we were and so so i wanted to ask an even bigger question and replace and to replace feedback here which is is under the skin the greatest science fiction film of the 21st century and if it's if it's not what what would your uh, candidate uh be wow it's certainly the one of the first that comes to mind if not the first comes to mind the the other contenders for me just the top off the top of my head are our uh, uh, AI, which we've covered on this show, mm-hmm. uh, and, and uh, artificial intelligence, a film that uh, that I, that's dear to my heart, and uh, Arrival, which is an, another uh, just really, I think, beautifully made, strangely upsetting and, and moving, and you know, maybe just when I saw it, but very of the moment <laughs> science fiction film uh, by Denis Villeneuve. Um, that, yeah, that, that, that film uh, totally also, flattened me when I saw that. Yeah, <laughs> same. <laughs> the first time in the theater, I had to like collect myself at the end of that movie. What, what, what about you? Do you have any candidates, Joe? Yeah, any, any you know, and I, don't, I wouldn't be prepared to say just because I first saw this film this week. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, there were moments that reminded me of a film from this century that I really love, Annihilation. That's it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Down to the design yeah. when you finally get under the titular skin and see the alien it, it there's there's something that reminded me of you know the the types of humanoid characters i suppose uh, figures that you see in annihilation and similarly the kind of really arresting visuals you know and seeing that movie in a theater was uh, one of my favorite theater going experiences and just yeah that's uh, annihilation is a movie that has had has stuck with me since i saw it totally yeah I mean, that was one that uh it 
came into theaters with uh, with like bad buzz basically and so in the mm-hmm. and they saved the press screening i think pretty late uh for, until it came out so we were so it was like oh this is on this is you know ex machina was so good like what uh, what's uh what's what's the deal with this film and same director right Am yeah I alex garland yeah yeah, no, yeah same. right and and it just it freak completely blew me away and it blew me away as a theater going experience that was you know like under the skin it was just the the the, the full kind of symphony of effects that were it, it seemed to me as much as i really like ex machina it seemed to me kind of a huge leap forward in ter- just on a filmmaking level Absolutely. Not to mention it's just an idea level. I, 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 that would be. I mean, Under the Skin is probably probably my answer to this, and and I love the other the other A movies as well. <laughs> they the have AIs to start with and A. The, uh, and Arrival. <laughs> I think we don't need to go any further in the in the alphabet until we get to Under the Skin. But uh, what about you, Tasha? Well, I mean, there is my beloved uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Uh, yeah, turns up on a lot of science fiction lists, and I, you know, yield to none in my love of that movie. But a couple I would add for consideration of the list that are also movies we've done on this podcast would be uh, Children of Men and oh, right. God, of course. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Uh, yeah. Both of them really kind of minimalist in their like technical sci-fi uh, attributes, you know, just like very... We're not Children of Men. Mm, I mean, Children the of Men. Work on that? That's crazy. No, 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 That's no, 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 no. In terms of within the world itself, okay. you know, Sorry, you've, go you've got self-driving cars, uh, but and and like ah, I got sort of updated technical phone and TV kinds of things. But no, no, not in terms of the technical work behind no. the scenes. Yeah, I mean, Eternal Sunshine is 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 hilariously analog. <laughs> Those machines, uh, the machines used to uh, uh, are very crude. And, yeah, uh, so exactly. So, you know, but neither of those movies like very, uh, you know, hard science fiction, uh, space going kind of sci-fi. But for th- that reason, I think both of them maybe connect more on an emotional level as as human stories rather than, uh, you know, far future out in the out in space kind of stories. Uh, I would also throw in on that uh, District 9 which is one of those films that lives rent free in my head. I am a little mm-hmm. afraid to go back and revisit that in the light of yeah. having seen so many other Neil Blomkamp movies. I'm afraid <laughs> uh-huh. it just wouldn't look the same did you anymore. Did Turismo, Tasha? I did not, but you know, I, I saw Elysium. <laughs> I saw Chappie. Mm-hmm. I saw, uh, You're afraid it wouldn't live I can't up to remember Chappie. the name. <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm just, I'm afraid that every, nothing really lives nothing up to Chappie. Nothing will live up to Chappie, uh, the character or the movie. How Chappie do, we get, how so do, funny we, get, how do we get this far into the podcast without mentioning? <laughs> yeah, not to, not to steer us further away, but, but like it's the kind of movie that you think would pick up a cult following in some way, just because it's so odd. But I don't think anyone likes it enough to, for it to pick up a cult following. Maybe there's a huge Chappie my, cult following. Uh, my I'm not friends even aware are, of. are are pretty into watching Chappie with a <laughs> level of ironic detachment and uh, hooting and hollering. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's not, not the same that's, though. That's, is not, it? that's not good for Neil Blomkamp. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, bad news. But I hear he's a nice guy though. So <laughs> it's like my, my friends are my, my friends are really even watching Cats. It's like, well, that's that's not that's not great for uh, for those people either. He's certainly um, an interesting so, interview and uh, somebody yeah. that is continually trying to you know push the medium in interesting ways. But I'm just afraid he doesn't tell very good stories. 
Yeah. Well, we'll Man, see. Man, we're just going to slag on Neil Blomkamp. What, yeah. We in in, in the context of saying, I really love this movie by Neil Blomkamp. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's, well, it's, it's, a t- it's a tougher sequence for, it's a tougher segment for him than uh, you'd think for a uh, best sci-fi films of the 21st century would be. I am sorry be, to insult your beloved chappy, uh, Keith, but uh, yeah, there's just, there's a, a first movie packed with ideas as if I might never get to tell to to make a second movie kind of quality to District 9 but it's also it just it does so much with so little in terms of of budget you know the mm-hmm. effects are just really memorable the the setting the storytelling uh Charlotte Copti's kind of central uh, performance which uh I have never seen him be as good in a movie since. I just really enjoyed that movie a lot, but I, I do say that from the perspective of somebody who has not gone back and rewatched it. We always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on the future episode. Uh, if you have some thoughts about uh, great 21st century sci-fi films that we have not mentioned, or uh, if you have any theories about under the skin uh that we have not covered uh, we'd love to hear from you to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net that's it for this episode of the next picture show and our next episode we'll talk about no one will save you the title of which firmly answers the question will somebody save me Uh, Look for that next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, I'm going to enjoy a nice big slice of chocolate cake without regurgitating it. Take that, aliens. Aliens.